This is episode 189 with the former head strength and conditioning coach for the LA Lakers pro basketball team, doctor of physical therapy, Mr. Tim DeFrancesco. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features the former head strength and conditioning coach for the LA Lakers basketball team from 2011 through 2017, Tim DeFrancesco. You're going to learn why weight training is not cross-training, but simply training for endurance runners. We'll discuss durability, injury resilience, springiness, and how to start with plyometrics. For more on strength training for runners, be sure to sign up at strengthrunning.com strength. Before we start, I also want to make sure we're all lining up on the same starting line. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry to give you the knowledge, the mindsets, and tools to get faster, stronger, and become a more capable athlete. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage and invest in yourself, you'll be a much better runner. You may also love our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos on weightlifting for runners, injury prevention, how to run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video we publish on a weekly basis. And of course, if you have never visited strengthrunning.com, this is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. I'm also so glad to have the support of our sponsor, Beam, to make even more episodes of the podcast for you. I have fallen in love with their products. Go to beamtlc.com and use code Jason to save 15% on your order on anything they offer. I've been loving their Elevate hydration lineup, especially the caffeinated watermelon flavor. It's delicious. And check this out. If you sign up for a monthly subscription, that's already 20% off. So with your discount code, you're going to get 35% off your first month. Go to beamtlc.com, use code Jason at checkout, and improve your hydration today. Our guest today is a powerhouse in the world of strength and conditioning. Tim DeFrancesco is the president and founder of TD Athletes Edge in Salem, Massachusetts, and held the position of head strength and conditioning coach of the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA for over six seasons from 2011 through 2017. He graduated from Endicott College in 2003 with his bachelor's degree in exercise science and athletic training. He then went on to the University of Massachusetts Lowell, where he earned his doctorate of physical therapy in 2006. And today, we're talking about better frameworks for thinking about strength training for runners, including plyometrics and what they do for us. Our conversation focuses on how to get started, some of Tim's favorite exercises, specifically for endurance runners, the physiological adaptations that occur from weightlifting, and why running as a plyometric activity demands some plyometric training to help you stay healthy. Tim was a real pleasure to speak with, and I hope you have as much fun listening as I did speaking with him. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Tim DeFrancesco. Tim, welcome to the podcast. 
I appreciate it, Jason. It's great to be on. Well, in doing my homework for this conversation, Tim, I learned that you have established your strength and conditioning facility in my home state of Massachusetts, which is great, but in the city of Salem. Did you pick the spookiest town in the country on purpose, or was this just luck? <laughs> you know, I figured if we could get in uh, a spot in Salem, we would be guaranteed a couple of days off in October every month. And, uh, you know, so, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's right in the heart, right in the thick of it, right in the thick of uh, which city, as they call it. I'll never forget my eighth grade field trip to the Salem like witch museum they have there. And it was very graphic. There's like a demonstration, essentially a huge diorama of someone getting pressed on the rack and all kinds of gross things. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, that in month of October, you, you, you start going downtown a little bit less. The, uh, people come out of the woodwork that time of year. <laughs> That's funny. I can only imagine, yep. but we are not here to talk about Salem witch trials. We're here to talk about Strength training for runners. I'm so excited because this is a passion of mine uh, because I see so much value for runners and I see how this can really transform their training. And, you know, recently on Twitter, this is where I, I discovered you and your work, and, and you shared something on Twitter that I just found so funny about runners. And uh, I, I want to share it right now. You wrote, the amount of runners who think they don't need lower body strength training because they get enough strength work from running is hilarious. FYI, lower body strength training helps you be more like a gazelle and less like a donkey when you run. Your choice. <laughs> so after I had a good laugh, I realized how true this was. And, and I'd love to dig into this a little bit. First, maybe we can start with, what do you mean by running like a gazelle versus a donkey? So that idea of you know, feeling like you're propelling from the ground, you're, um, you know, in control of the run versus the running control of you. You're not plodding and your legs feeling very heavy as you run. And we all know you've been out on that run and you just feel like I got the heavy legs and my, you know, my, my feet are just like stumps on the ground and it's just, uh, not, it's just not jiving. Um, and sometimes those are every once in a while because of just you've you've overfilled the bucket. But sometimes there's an a chronic sort of <laughs> approach to um, both your anatomy, but also your training approach that can lend towards that plotting approach versus the springy, bouncy, um, really light and effortless type of running that we all want to feel like. And and picture when you, you say, I'm, I'm going to get into running or I'm going to do running long term is what we are all striving for. And so, um, you know, that that uh, that really springy and, and bouncy and, and um, energy based type of uh running pattern and and um uh you know format is is the one that we're striving for and the really what it comes down to is what i was trying to get at there is that how you train can absolutely push you uh more towards one of those than the other and that sort of plodding heavy um donkey like running um it it you know, it, it isn't all just, that's just how it was built. And, you know, I hear people say, Oh yeah, that person was built to be a runner. I wasn't, but I love it. So I do it anyways. And, um, you know, 
yeah, you may be built a little bit more like a donkey than a gazelle. That's just the the that's just the facts. That's just what mom and dad gave us in some cases. But you can totally train yourself a little bit le- towards you know a gazelle and a little bit less of you know a donkey in that sense if you're willing to put in the time to load those um, areas. And we talk about you know tendons, ligaments, muscles, and bones that make that up. So we can get into it as we talk a little bit more as far as like really what I'm meaning meaning in terms of the nitty gritty of that. Yeah, and and it seems to me just from my running experience that this really boils down to are you feeling like you are dragging yourself through a run or do you feel like you are springing forward? And it almost seems like we're kind of debating semantics here, but I I really think there is a tangible difference. And, And not only will you feel better, but one of those styles is much more efficient, much more economical. And it's something that you know, for running, when we think of it, you know, running is essentially a series of one-legged hops. You know, you're coordinated, you're very coordinated one-legged hops. And so we need to be good at hopping. And that requires a lot of springiness, a lot of energy return. And so the way that you described this, I thought was fantastic. And I think every runner, no matter, you know, what your level of fitness is, what your ability is like, we should be working toward this. Um, now, I hear it from all the time from runners who say, I'm not super competitive. I'm not running 10 miles a day. I'm not trying to win races. So why should I lift weights? Why should I try to spring forward like a gazelle? And it seems like there's this bias that exists that only good runners lift weights and work towards this level of capability. When in fact, I think it's the opposite. I think runners who lift weights are just more likely to be more competitive. So how do we address this, Tim? How do we get runners to buy into this idea that this is just as important a piece of the training puzzle as the workout you have scheduled every Tuesday or the long run you're doing this weekend? Right. So the big, I mean, I think really important thing is to recognize that endurance, um, lower body endurance work is not a, it it is not, it's not equal to in terms of how your muscles receive it and what they do with that load. It's not equal to resistance training. You know, that's sort of the first part of that, that tweet where it was like, Hey, you, you can't, just because you're working your legs as you run versus as you do a lower body workout in your your resistance training, not apples to apples in terms of the stimulus, in terms of what that stimulus is doing and what the structures that are receiving the stimulus are doing with that. So, um, you know, there's really sort of a, um, there's an, an endurance aspect of just going for a run and doing that really regularly for three, six, you know, 10 miles and several days a week, but that you can improve sort of the, um, the endurance tolerance of, of the muscles and, and, uh, load bearing structures that you're working of your lower body. And, and, um, and we'll get into something that I call the, the, the five plus one zones of durability and, and loading. But, um, you know, I think that from the standpoint of, you're not you're not building strength or springiness and the ability to propel yourself on a run by running necessarily. Um, realistically, the only way you're going to do that is if you're doing regular sprint. So regular regular sprint work 
it, it should actually be a part of um, a endurance runner's uh, routine because that is again really zeroing in on like as you said it's it's you're really getting into that single leg hopping action and and I look at sprinting as just one legged plyometrics as you're as you're doing that just as you said but the resistance training piece the loading that you get from that the mechanical loading that you get from that that creates the actual strength of the muscles but the biggest thing and how do we how do we get people to really resonate with this for for runners is that I think we know what it feels like if you're a runner to have been sidelined. It's not, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's probably from any athlete. There's, you know, the, the runner who's on the sidelines because of an injury is as, you know, has as much angst and, and, you know, pent up uh, negative energy from not being able to go do that thing that, that really scratches their itch of running, whether you're, it, preparing for a event or not, um, we all know what that running is for runners. It's that instance of clearing the head, getting out there, doing the thing that lets them kind of scratch the itch every, every day or, or as often as you typically do it. Suddenly you're sidelined. That's scary. It's not fun. It's it's very jarring for runners especially. So I look at the real reason to strength train and to resistance and add mechanical load, um, fancy term for saying for, for lifting heavy things, um, is your best and really only tried and true method towards lower body durability. And so that's how I try to, you know, really, um, really pitch it. And then usually you're more than likely you're talking to somebody who's been either might be in a vicious cycle of, you know, pain, rest, ice, get a shot, try my running again, and you get pain again, and you go back through the cycle, or they're, they've just come out of that. And they're hoping to never have to experience that at that level again. So I really think the durability aspect is overlooked um, in terms of why you would do that. In that tweet, I was really zeroing in more on the performance side of it, looking at sort of gazelle versus donkey in terms of springy versus plodding but there's that durability hook that it, it you there's not really another tried and true way to build durability in your lower body than lifting heavy things with your lower body and i think that is a good way to, of almost selling strength training to endurance runners who may not necessarily want to do any lower body strength training in that it's an activity that allows you to do the thing you really want to do so if you want longevity in the sport, if you want to keep being able to run races and run relatively higher mileage when you're 40, 50, 60 and beyond, we've got to really take care of our bodies. And I've become convinced that, you know, besides simply proper training, making sure that you're not increasing your mileage too quickly and just doing silly things with your running, that strength training is a close second for the best injury prevention, durability thing that you could add to your training. I just think it's, it's, you know, I've said this before, but you know, I always tell my runners that, you know, um, strength training is not cross training. It is just part of the training that you should be doing in your entire program. I like that. So I, I think these, these ways of framing things, I think is really important in getting runners to understand it because, you know, there was a time in my life where I was like, I don't need any strength training. I mean, my legs, they carry me for all these miles. They're so strong. Right. But I don't have time for it either. Yeah. I think the other interesting aspect of this is that 
we have to recognize that there are different avenues of accomplishing the same thing. And a runner who's running, say, 100 miles a week is going to have fairly strong legs. And a runner who's capable of sprinting really fast, a 400-meter specialist maybe, is going to have really strong legs. And someone who lifts a lot of weight is going to have strong legs. And as endurance runners, I think we should be building strength all, all of these ways. We should be trying to run higher mileage. We should be incorporating sprint workouts. And we should be lifting weights because they just interact in such amazing ways that I think they create a much more durable and much more well-rounded athlete. Well, and, you know, from that dirt, yeah, from that durability aspect, I think it's important to know, like, what we're not, we're not just talking about the soft tissue calf strains, the muscle uh, calf strains, the hamstring strains, the, you know, the, the quad strain type of stuff that, you know, people may have been hampered by. We're really, you've, every, often people forget that, the durability aspect and, and resistance training, mechanical loading, lifting heavy things with your lower body um, is is also creating durability, improved quality and, and tolerance and durability of your tendons, ligaments and bones. So when we think about what are the tissues that often outside of those little naggy or acute soft, soft tissue um, muscle strains, the tissues that are putting people on the sideline very, very often are those tendons, ligament, bones that break down, wear down, um, are overloaded without build it, having the tolerance to take the load. And, um, you know, most people don't think when I go to my, to the gym and I do my, my, my lifting, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to bulk up my uh, tendons and my ligaments here, you know, or, or certainly many people don't even think about the bones, you know, but in reality, they're getting as much benefit as, as your muscles are in that process. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because yeah, there's, I think a, a focus that's too overly focused on the effect on the muscles when you know, honestly, I'm more interested in the effect on all those connective tissues, because that's where a lot of these injuries are. And if anyone is kind of in this vicious cycle of tendonitis, whether that is, you know, in their Achilles, whether they have plantar fasciitis, there's all kinds of different itises out there. But those can be addressed fairly, uh, fairly well and effectively through strength training. And, And I think that's an area that is often missed with regard to strength training. Now, Tim, you mentioned five plus one zones of durability. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and what you meant by that. Yeah. So with with that, it, so so real quick in terms of what you just before, I, I can't wait to go in that. And and um, it's um, it's really a game changer for a lot of people when they start to think this way and mindset it towards everything. But what you just said was really important because what I often see is a prescription by whether it be you know, coach, it be um, trainer, it it be uh, PT, Cairo, or even medical doctors who suggest, okay, you come in, you get diagnosed with one of these itises, and um, I want you to rest, I want you to, to, to ice it, I want you to foam roll it, I want you to stretch it, but I want you to stay off of it. And I, I, you know, don't do too much with it and it's going to start to feel better. They might even say, you know, get a shot. They might even say, take a pill, whatever it is. So all of those more passive approaches are 
immediately sending you down this path of taking out the one thing that's actually going to get you back, which is build up its tolerance and capacity and load of that type of tissue. And so the one thing that does that is to strengthen that area early and often. Um, Beware, beware of the prescription that doesn't include, make sure if your prescription of how you're going to attack this itis doesn't include what we, the, the most important thing in this clinician or trainer or whoever isn't saying to you, you, but you have to continue to strengthen it and, and work it. And we have to, we're going to have to work through this to some extent. Um, be scared of that. Um, you know, the passive approach will set you up because all it is, is it you're, you're, you're taking the, um, you're, you're, you're putting yourself literally on the couch and you are taking the, tolerance that gets built up by you running or strength training or both away. So then all of a sudden the thing that does keep it strong or could get it strong again is now really gone. Now it's like, okay, yeah, actually I did, I did rest for like seven straight days and it kind of feels better. Like, of course it does. You didn't do anything and your tissue isn't being taxed at all. So, you know, the thing that was aggravating it has been taken away. So it's going to feel a little better, but it was never actually changed in its quality or its tolerance. So now you go back to that thing. And if anything, the muscles and the tendons and other things around it, they didn't get taxed either during that time because you rested. So now you're at this point where that area plus other areas around it have lower tolerance than ever before, than even before the injury. And then we go back and that's where we go. Oh man, I went, you know, one mile out and it was back again. The calf strain got me again. It was right back. And I thought I was, I thought it was over, you know, and, uh, um, I was certain I was past this, but, um, so anyways, that was a real quick, like you said, you, you called it, you, we would get into some tangents here, but, uh, um, so the five plus one zones of durability, or how I break down and look at anytime I'm writing a program, a strength program for a runner, a jumping athlete, and pretty much anybody who's doing anything on their feet, but really zeroed in on that for the runner, the, the acceleration, deceleration athlete, the jump landing athlete. Um, and the plus one zone is, is specifically for the endurance athletes, but five zones. So what we look at is we start down at the foot ankle. So we look at, you brought a couple of them up already. We look at uh, plantar fascia from a soft tissue standpoint. We look at plantar fascia, Achilles, calf. That's sort of one zone there. If you wanted to add in the hardware of the area, we're talking ankle joint, um, you know, and, and other ligaments in and around that area. So that's zone one. Then we go up the back of the leg. We get to the hamstring. Very, very common sort of either hamstring tendinopathy or acute hamstring strains that can develop uh, for runners in, in that hamstring group. Um, and from there, we go into what I call the, you know, the, the hamstring's cousin, really just a hamstring family member is the adductors. So the inner thigh muscles. So those inner thigh muscles are, um, you know, really critical toward controlling the pelvis, um, also kind of acting as a uh, not only uh, extensor of the hip, but just controlling the femur and the pelvis as it attaches in and around all of that. So super critical. 
runners often do a lot of stuff straight ahead, very little stuff in the frontal plane, um, you know, side to side. And, and that can come back to bite them very um, out of nowhere. And they realize for the last two years, I've really done nothing side to side. That area has never been taxed. Um, and so that being sort of that third zone, we come around the front of the leg, we get quad, hip flexor. And um, from there, we're looking at for the sort of meat of the quadricep muscles in the mid quad, there can be developments of a quad strain there, but those hip flexors are the ones that I get, I see a lot because the running action, that knee, that, that kind of sprint and run action of knee coming up with every, um, every step, that action is driven by the hip flexors. I hear a lot of runners saying my hip flexors are always tight. I get that anterior hip tightness all the time. It's almost pinching there, that kind of stuff. I don't know what's going on. I stretch them for days and nothing happens. All I do is stretch and foam roll my hip flexors and nothing happens. Um, so that is an area where it can be a really both performance and sort of durability uh, based issue over time. Uh, now we go down into that fifth zone, which is a uh, quadricep tendon where the quad turns into the patella and then the patella tendon where the, the kneecap turns into the little bony bump on your shin, the front of your shin. Those are load bearing tendons um, from the quadricep in, in the knee area that are often in those itises or tendinopathy um, carriers of, of what you end up with. And so those five zones um, being really critical load bearing zones for a lower body based athlete. Um, and then the, the plus one is that lateral line. So we look at um, TFL uh, muscle that turns into IT band and sort of the lateral glute. You can get some tendinopathies in the glute medius and stuff like that. Um, but then that IT band, that gnarly IT band stuff that a lot of um, endurance athletes struggle with from time to time. So, the, there's sort of the plus one zones and I, I call it the plus one zone on purpose because I, I it, that zone is the one that is probably most um, resonates most often with most endurance athletes is, is that lateral line can get really cranky um, for, for many people um, in that endurance athlete and running um, uh, category of things. And so just to call it six zones, you kind of lose it, it. It just loses itself into it. So I really highlight it with the plus one. Um, the, the first part is understanding those are zones of load bearing, that those are zones of load bearing that we need to recognize if you're a runner, those zones are taking load with every step. And if you are not loading those areas, their ability to bear load is not as good as it needs to be. And that happens through mechanical loading, through lifting heavy things with your lower body in different planes and in many cases in very isolated ways. I like to really isolate out and get away from this movement of people to, you know, in, in, in both physical therapy and rehab and, and strength and conditioning and, and personal training to sort of get obsessed with everything has to be functional. Every exercise for it to be functional means you have to be moving the whole body at once or else it's not functional. Look, those areas bear a lot of load. If you're not going to isolate those out and strengthen the heck out of them and load the heck out of them, they're going to get overloaded at some point. They're just not going to be ready. Um, you know, a bunch of total body movements and stretches and functional training is not going to do the trick for those areas. You're going to have to isolate them out. So um, a good comprehensive program, strength program, uh, is going to include some isolation work in those areas. 
I like how you isolated out that plus one zone because it's a, a zone that you don't want to get lost in the shuffle and it tends to, you know, really affect a lot of runners. And I'm one of those runners. I have a history of IP band syndrome. It didn't really happen until I was 10 years into my running career. I started running marathons, thought that I had a good handle on training. And next thing you know, I just have this history of, of IT band issues. And I was just wondering, you know, uh, what can we do in our training to to really work on this specific zone? Because I feel like a lot of the other zones, you could, you could get a lot of value and benefit from squats and deadlifts. And, and those are really going to load those zones pretty well. But it's the lateral zone, the side of our legs. Does that require side-to-side movement? Or, or how would you tackle this for an endurance athlete who came to your facility? Right. So some of the, um, you know, immediately we would start in ground-based work. And so doing something as um, simplistic as, and really isolated as a sideline straight leg lift. So, you know, mini band above the knees, laying on your side, straighten out the the top leg, bottom leg is slightly bent to give yourself some balance on your side. And then we're just working um, a heavy resistance band into um, rep rep counts of uh, typically eight to, to 20 reps of that straight leg raise. That's one of the easiest and, and, and quickest ways to kind of go right at that lateral line and start to load it up. So then we can look at the inverted way of targeting that area, which is to do, again, a very simple exercise, one that many people will have probably done, but not realized they were, when they were doing it, they were actually targeting this area it's a side plank, a straight leg side plank, a, a, a traditional straight leg side plank is going to load that lateral line, load that IT band, the bottom leg. So the leg closest to the ground, that IT band, uh, whole lateral line is getting loaded the whole time. We most often think of the side plank as, oh, we're doing this for our core. And you're, it's a great way to load that lateral line. Um, once we get up into sort of some standing action, what I like to really incorporate for that is some, um, and you you talked about it, getting out of sort of the straight ahead work, but getting not only lateral or in the frontal plane, but um, kind of the uh, transverse plane through something like the, and, and just, what that means is just kind of multi planes at once. So kind of going rotationally, not just straight laterally, but laterally and with some rotation into something like what I call, and what many people would call a curtsy lunge or a curtsy squat. Um, so you're sweeping your, your, say you're standing on your left leg, you're sweeping your right leg behind you and diagonally behind you into a curtsy position. You can imagine somebody doing a, a big, long curtsy. And so, um, so really loading that area, that, that stance leg, the one, the leg that you're standing on and not doing the curtsy action with is, um, going to be loaded through that line because of how the body has to sort of support you in that diagonal, um, transverse pattern. So those are some really quick, um, easy ones to load up that lateral line. And I like to add eccentric, um, uh, you know, time to that. Sometimes some isometric holds in the bottoms of positions just to add time under tension on those and, and, you know, get fairly heavy with once you've introduced some of them over time, some, you know, curtsy squats, some curtsy lunges and, um, and things like that, 
get fairly heavy with those over time um, to really build up the the tolerance. Those are a classic example of uh, that entire lateral line is a classic example of tissue that if it's flared up, if you're currently suffering a flare up, these are things you want to work through. I always tell our members, say, work up into a five-ish out of 10 discomfort where 10 is I got to go to the emergency room. It's so bad. If you're at a four or five and you're doing the exercise, many people are saying, should I work through this? How do I know? And it is based on what tissues are we loading. Um, I wouldn't say that for a meniscus. If we had a, a bum meniscus and we were irritating it past a, a one or a two, I wouldn't really try to work past that. Different tissue, different response to, to working through pain. Um, those tissues require, in fact, not are okay, but require that you're going to work through some discomfort on that as you kind of remodel the quality of it and you improve its tolerance and durability and capacity. Is a general rule to take from this that if you have pain in a muscle, maybe you can go up higher in that rating of perceived pain. But if it's in a tendon or other connective tissue, it's a good idea to to err on the side of caution on a lower scale. So actually, I would I would go opposite on that. So muscle, you, you, you yeah, muscle. I would I would um, you know especially early on in an acute muscle strain, um, you you know you're looking at um, uh, you're you're going to be a little bit less aggressive early on on that. Now, I'm still very in the camp of even in a soft tissue muscle strain um, case, move and strengthen early and often, two to two to four out of 10 discomfort, okay to live in that zone. If you're up in a four plus, um, you know, early on in the process, especially back off a little bit. Tendon, um, especially tendon is the big one. So tendon work up through some pain, whatever really you can tolerate. So, you know, um, unless you're really spiking that thing and you're like, I can barely stay on my foot right now because I'm, I'm in so much pain. Um, that is shown tendon tissue is shown to require and, and really respond well to working through the discomfort. Um, and, and so that's, that's the one that is, um, sort of that fibrous, IT bands are technically not a tendon, but that fibrous tendinous like tissue along those lines and up higher where it's glute medius uh, and and uh, TFL muscle and the, the meaty part of your, your high lateral butt cheek, there's tendons up in there of that lateral line where working right through that is, is a good idea. And this does remind me of rehabbing an Achilles tendinopathy situation where it, it is actually recommended to continue doing those eccentric heel drops, even if you are experiencing some pain. And so that, that jives a lot with me. That's right. Now, Tim, I'd love to talk a little bit about how people get started with strength training when they don't really have any experience with it. Because, you know, there's typically a fair amount of hesit hesitancy among runners because, you know, we get into the gym, we're doing exercises we're not familiar with there's equipment there that we're not familiar with. Not to mention the fact that you're usually surrounded by people who seem to know what they're doing and that can be intimidating. It's kind of like, you know, a new runner going to the track when there's, you know, a, a pro or university team doing a workout there. And of course, they're going to feel like the odd duck out a little bit. So, you know, how do we get runners uh, without a lot of strength training experience to get over this obstacle and commit to weightlifting? Do you recommend starting with body weight exercises? And then once you've 
you know, built up this habit that you can then get into the, the gym and do some heavier lifts? Yeah, I love that. I think that's really important. I mean, when we work with somebody in in our facility or in our online, our custom online training um, experience, it's it. First of all, I mean, it's it's very, it's it's tricky to um, DIY this without some level of an assessment. Now, that could be a self assessment, um, but you do want to know and having a level of awareness of, okay, squat pattern feels really comfy for me. I, I'm, I'm very comfortable in my squat. I can get fairly low, well below 90 degrees at of, of hip and knee flexion as I go butt to the ground and feel great with that. Um, hinging or deadlifting, I've never really understood that. I don't, I feel, I feel awkward doing it. I, I don't like doing it. It doesn't feel good for me. Um, single leg work for me is easy. Going laterally into a squat on the, on, you know, one leg or the other is, is very awkward for me, or actually I, I do great with it. So having an understanding of that or getting a formal assessment of where you stand and where your starting points on each of those movement patterns is really important. And then when you start to think about um, from a lower body standpoint, how you put together a workout, you want to understand what the, the fundamental movements of the lower body are, the fundamental strength and performance positions and movements. So what we look at is we look at the the two-legged squat pattern, and um, that's most people are fairly familiar with that. Um, we look at uh, the hinge, and we, we look at a one-leg and a two-leg hinge. Um, we look at a one-legged squat going backwards. We look at a one-legged squat as well. As you said, sort of, you know, a, a squat jump, a single-leg hop is is ultimately what you're almost doing with every step as you run. So understanding how somebody does in a really controlled single leg squat action is actually very applicable and important to, you know, what they're going to look like when they're doing a series of single leg hops called running. Um, So looking at those actions, understanding heel raises, uh, how many, a really nice little test for yourself is to uh, stand by a wall, use your fingertips to just tap the wall if you need it. Uh, but try not to touch the wall, um, stand on one leg and do as many heel raises to the highest point that you can do a, a one to two heel raises and you, you test yourself on one to two to see, okay, what's the, my normal high point. And you do as many as you can to your high point without fatigue or having to stop due to, you know, putting your other foot down longer than a quick tap down or putting your hands to a quick tap. So, you know, what you want to look at there is a, a, a runner should be able to do 20 plus on one leg, um, no touches that that's like okay we're 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 at least you know we're out of the red zone we're 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 you know i'm 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 not scared um you know i'm i'm happier if we're talking about 30 plus um and so a lot of people will be surprised runners that have never really built up that that area of the calf plantar fascia achilles calf complex um and they're in, they're into it and they're like, after 16, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm smoked. I can't, I don't think I can even make it to 20. Um, or they get to 20, but it looks like they're doing it on a canoe in the water. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, it's, um, that's a way to do a little quick self-assessment. You can also do a fatigue test. Uh, and we do these, uh, within our battery of assessment that we do, um, is a, a single leg fatigue test, a single leg squat fatigue test. So you find a, a, a folding chair height, 
uh, typically is a great height for most people. If you're a taller individual, say over six, um, you know, two, you, you might go to um, something a little bit tall. You know, you might put a pad on a folding chair or something like that to account for the height. And um, you're just going to stand directly in front of that folding chair raise one leg out in front of you slightly off the ground and do as many single leg squats as you can going butt down to the chair, sit down for a one count. Don't rest on the chair, sit down for a one count and stand up immediately. Go back up and down in that tempo uh, for as many reps as you can. And again, in that um, test, I really like to see, you know, 12 to 20 reps, you know, should be baseline. That should be like, I'm not scared anymore for this person. Um, and you're, you know, really getting a good idea of where you stand from also, um, right to left, because you might find, right. I was knocking out 25 to 30, no problem. And then left, I got to 17 and I was like, wow. And so that can help you to identify some areas that you might need to work on one side to the other, um, which is very common to find. Um, so those are some things to look at. We, we really like to look at when I, when I do an assessment, so another couple other patterns, we look at a split squat, which is just a stationary lunge position. Um, we look at a lunge pattern walking and a, um, uh, and just a, a stationary lunge and then a lateral squat and a lateral lunge. So the difference between a lateral squat or a, a, a split squat and a, a lunge, a lunge means you're stepping into it and stepping back versus a split squat or a lateral squat as you start with your feet in one position, you just go down in and out of the position. You never move your feet. Um, but being able to see that is very, very helpful. And, and, and you may even now going through it as I'm talking through it, realize that yeah, I haven't even actually tried a, uh, I've not, I've not even done a lateral squat. I don't know um, how I would look on that or, you know, so it's very important to understand how, what your starting point is on any of those patterns, because some of those patterns you may be very fluent and very comfortable in naturally, or because you've done some of them very regularly. Uh, Those are patterns where you could start to load them pretty quickly. Um, To get back to your original point is like, how do I know? Where do I start? Do I just start everything body weight and then eventually get dumbbells with everything? You know, some of those positions you might feel like, you know what, this is really challenging for me. I'm watching myself in the mirror. It's a little bit uh, less than perfect here. And so that's one where you can really start in from a body weight standpoint. Um, When I do an assessment, I'm only looking for identifying one big thing in every movement, which is I want to know your starting point from a resistance training standpoint. Where can you start? Are you ready to get in some load it, uh, under your belt on that movement? And then what complexity of that movement can I start you at? But also, or are you, look, we've got to iron out just the movement here. We've got to get your 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 body weight, com, you know, uh, uh, ability of this exercise, of this movement under control before we consider loading it. So that's really important to know that it's great to know those movements too, because if you know those movements, if you know, okay, hinge, squat, there's two-legged, there's one-legged, there's lateral squat, there's lateral lunge, there's split squat, there's lunging, you know, there's reverse lunging. I mean, that you've now sort of tackled the five to eight fundamental strength uh, and movement um, positions and, and movements of the lower body. And if you start to put together your workouts that include all of that, 
it's really critical to, you know, have a touch point on all of that. I love this because I, I love simple diagnostic strategies that really outline where runners are at for both strength, but also potentially imbalances, you know, and I'm sitting here furiously writing down, you know, the reps that you recommend for, you know, all these different exercises. I think as soon as we're done, I'm going to go try them. And, and I'm so competitive. I, I want to be over at least the minimum that you said. So I think these are really practical ways for runners just to see kind of how they stack up, where their strength is right now, and, you know, what the potential things are that they have to work on. And, and I think, you know, like you said, seeing where you are insufficient compared with somewhere else. So for example, if, you know, you could do 30 reps on one leg, but only 20 on the other, that's giving you some really valuable data. And, and I love a simple kind of an approach to this. Um, now, Tim, we have talked about tendons. We have talked about loading tendons. We have talked about springing, springiness and kind of hopping from one leg to the other. So of course, I'm going to want to talk about plyometrics this is kind of a dicey subject for runners uh, because, you know, I do think they have such a, a fairly high injury risk, especially if you're not doing them right. Um, how do you think about plyometrics? Do you consider plyos to be strength work or do you consider them to be more of a drill or are we just getting lost in semantics? I absolutely, I mean, not only do I consider them strength work, I literally pair them. I like to pair them using a contrast method of, of strength training where you take an exercise like a, a very, very simple basic one is to do two-footed heel raises standing. So you do you know two dumbbells, one in each hand. You're going to do heel raises for 20 reps. Um, it could be 10-pound dumbbells. It doesn't have to be crazy heavy. Um, and you're going to put those dumbbells down and you're going to do a jump roping action without a jump rope, which I call a pogo jump where your hands aren't moving like a jump rope. So you're going to then do the plyometric nature of that strength movement you just did immediately after. So there's great evidence to suggest that when you pair them literally in the same workout, not only consider them the same type of category, but pair them back to back like that of the same movement types and, and muscle areas, strength first, uh, plyometric second, and they can follow each other or lead each other. But being able to do that creates a potentiation and a neuromuscular um, adaptation in addition to the muscular adaptation that you're going to get from just loading the muscles through the strength work by itself. And so what you talked about was that springiness and the ability to, um, what I think about with the plyometrics is not only, you know, creating those springy tendons and, and kind of getting the, um, the, the, the bouncy, uh, adaptation that you get from, from doing plyometrics in your lower body. But the, the other big key is that you are, it is just another way to build capacity and tolerance in those tissues. So that's why I look at it as strength training. It's just, and you could do loaded plyometrics. You could do, uh, uh, just a pogo jump with a, with two, two and a half pound dumbbells. So you have five extra pounds than your body weight, which now you're jumping. So the loads are higher. So the forces are higher just from jumping. And so you just by holding two and a half pounds in each hand, you're creating an overload effect without getting crazy. Um, that can be very, very effective in terms of 
building up the capacity and the tolerance of those tissues to withstand the decelerations of every step, the push-offs of every step. And that's what you want to be thinking about. As much as, hey, this is going to help you push off harder, faster, bigger, faster, stronger, it's you know, you're there. We're now back to how do we create durability in those areas? Um, so it's a critical part. You could think of something like a, a split squat exercise. Uh, you do five reps on each side with, um, you know, 25 pound dumbbells on in each hand. You put the dumbbells down and you do a, um, a, a split squat jump. So you're just jumping off the ground with uh, one leg up in front, one leg in back and sort of a stationary lunge position. And you just do some jumps in that position. So it's a great way to load up and create that neuromuscular adaptation, the muscular adaptation, and then ultimately that tolerance of everything. Um, I love, love, love that contrast pairing method. I'm so glad that you talked about tolerance building through plyometrics because I feel like whenever I learn more about plyos, whenever I read about them, they're only discussed as a way of essentially converting your strength into speed. You know, let's be more economical. Let's make sure that we can effectively store and release all of those impact forces and, you know, all of that tension so that we can release it and have a more powerful stride. But the way that you explained it, I think was really helpful in that, you know, running is a plyometric activity. And by doing more plyos in our training, by being strategic with them and and maybe even adding a small amount of load, it's essentially creating more tolerance for the very thing, you know, our sport specific activity, which is running. And that I think is, is something that's not often discussed. And, and I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I think it's important to what you say is because I, my mindset is it, it's, it's flipped. Like you said, it's flipped from, it's hard for me to even picture the looking at it the other way. I look at it almost only as the reason I'm doing this is to build the tolerance of those tissues, whereas everybody else is looking at it as a speed power developer. I just say, look, that's cool that that's going to probably happen by doing this, but I need this person in order for them to have a shot at continuing to do what they want to do or, or win the race they're going to enter themselves into first of all, they got to be in the race. <laughs> so they can't be on the sideline. So now, um, so my thing is why not focus on the durability and the tolerance of these tissues and let the strength and the power and the speed be byproducts of what will happen. But when we get obsessed and we get, you know, really intoxicated by saying bigger, faster, stronger on what can we do to get bigger, faster, stronger, it's, and, and, and not worry about the durability piece first that's where we overdo it because it's like, oh, well, let's add more plyos then because, you know, that would make us even more bigger, faster, stronger. And it's all about performance. It's really all about durability. And then if you have the durability, you let your performance do the talking. I think you have a really interesting background to talk about this because you were the strength and conditioning coach for the Lakers for about six years or so. And you know, my first love was basketball. I stopped growing after eighth grade, so I had to abandon <laughs> that dream. <laughs> but, you know, basketball is such a plyometric sport. You are sprinting and stopping and there's lateral movement and you're jumping and you're jumping in all kinds of different ways. I, one of the reasons why I love basketball is it's like athletic dancing on the court and it's just so beautiful. How did you think about using plyos in the sport of basketball with some of the best basketball players in the world. Did, did that take a different form as opposed to, you know, maybe working with an adult runner? You know, 
subtle, subtle difference. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's. I look at it very, very similarly. So the only difference is that so that that jumping, cutting athlete, like a basketball player, like a volleyball player, in some ways, um, they are just going to need to be prepared for more intensity. Um, probably, you know, less overall um of of those actions because a runner is going to go out for three six ten miles straight and every step is one of those actions so it's going to be you know so many so many more and they're doing so many more bouts of it per week probably it's like chronic load that they need to be ready for the basketball player needs to be ready for that acute explosive really high force loads um and it's really just a matter of understanding okay that basketball player probably needs to do a little bit more of the overload type work. Um, they probably many basketball players are going to have a bigger body frame. So what goes up is going to come down. And if it's heavier coming down um, there and they went up a little further, probably and then, you know, the average runner would be leaping away from the ground. They better be prepared for really high forces, you know, multiple times a game at, at, a, at a level that would exceed by far every, what a runner would ever get to. So we need to create overload in a way with those basketball players much sooner and more more regularly, whereas we need to develop more of a chronic um, tolerance and, and load-bearing um, capability for the, for the runner. And it's not that you can't dabble in both for each athlete, but where the dial is shifted toward in one versus the other is really important to recognize and it's just uh, you know um so i I think it's 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 uh it's important to understand your sport i'm certainly gonna i'm not gonna have the same plyometric focus in a program for a field hockey player as i am a runner as i am a a volleyball player or basketball player yeah i think that's so fascinating and you know when i dabbled in the three thousand meter steeplechase when i was in college i felt like i was combining my two my two loves of endurance running and also jumping around and hurtling over things. That's uh, <laughs> that's a gnarly event right there. Yeah, and I did feel like of all the events that I tried, the steeplechase was uniquely fatiguing in that it was an endurance race that included skills that you would do in an explosive, more power-oriented sport. That is so fatiguing and tiring. And, you know, my pace for 3,000 meters ended up being far slower than what I could run for 5,000 meters because of that. It's just fascinating. Incredible. Now, Tim, before we wrap, you know, we have talked about plyometrics a lot. You have mentioned uh, a couple different options. You know, there's that jumping rope motion, that two-legged option. You've also talked a little bit about, uh, uh, there was one other plyometric that that you offered, but I was just curious, what are some, you know, quote unquote, entry level plyos that might be helpful for runners to start incorporating into their training? Nothing super advanced or technical. This is so, so important. So what we need to think of is jumping and landing is a skill, number one. So you have to train the neuromuscular pattern, the the sort of, you know, the actual mechanics of the skill. You have to do reps of it and practice it properly and from an actual, a really smart starting point, number one. But also when you're starting to just introduce it and, and you know, you don't want to um, start doing 
20, you know, 30 inch box jumps and, you know, uh, or a hundred explosive squat jumps, um, as high as you can. Um, you really have to understand your starting point from both of those areas where we're, we want to slowly practice the mechanics, but we also want to slowly build the load tolerance. One of this could underline the entire conversation for the day. The easiest and, and best recipe for an injury is to spike a new activity in its volume rapidly without preparing for it. Okay, so you know, this is why injuries happen very commonly in the preseason, why injuries happen, you know, when you are just picking up a new routine, uh, when you're adding in a new stimulus to your uh, routine, that kind of thing. You didn't pay attention to the dose. The problem was not the activity. The problem was the dose and the person that dosed it. So, you know, that's us and thinking that more is better and whatever. I used to do a lot of this back in the day or I, you know, used to be able to dump, drive, you know, jump right into things and, and get right to the meat of it. And the body just does not like to do that. So from a jumping landing standpoint, same thing. We have to slowly build the capacity and tolerance of those tissues, but we have to practice the mechanics of the action um, very slowly from an entry level. The best way to do it is uh, what we call a drop to stick, a drop squat to stick, or a, a drop squat, a drop squat to stick, or some people call it a snap, snap down exercise. So picture yourself standing two feet, arms up in the air, knees, hips fully extended. You're all the way as tall as you can be, even on your tiptoes. And all in one motion, you're going to punch the ground with your elbows, your hips, and your heels. And you're going to come down into a squat position, slam on the brakes, and hold your position. So all at once, you're up high, you drop down, you stop hard, and you're sort of deset. If you think of that basketball player, that deep defensive stance position, um, but that lower mid to low squat position, hard stop, and you don't have what I call a soggy bottom or a you get to the bottom and your squat kind of does this and you bounce around a little bit at the bottom. You drop down and you look like this and it's a hard stop. So that is practicing deceleration. It's practicing the mechanics of deceleration and it's practicing it and it's allowing you to build and practice the tolerance of um, and the capacity of deceleration. Deceleration is very, um, it's very taxing on the lower body. And so as we prepare for that, that we need to gradually ease our way up to higher forces, higher loads, higher volumes of that. Um, and so you go from that to a position where you're going to start on a six inch box could be, you know, six to 12 inch box. You're just going to step with one leg slowly out and then drop off, drop off with both, both feet, catch your landing like a cat in that low, that low mid to low, um, uh, squat position, hard stop again, just really hard stop on your bottom of your squat. So you practice a hard deceleration landing and then you step back to the box and you do it off of the other foot dropping off. So you're starting to practice those, um, things in a really entry level way. Um, and that can be done in a split squat position as well. You can imagine yourself in a split squat on your tiptoes, arms up overhead, and three, two, one, down. I punch my elbows, my hips, and my heels to the ground, and I practice deceleration. So those are really great ways, and absolutely 100% of the people that we work with that we're ever going to go down a path that's going to include plyometrics, they're never going to be leaving the ground until they've done some of those drop squats, drop squat to sticks, um, and, and some of those other patterns.
Great. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is that if you're new to plyos, remember that it's maybe not necessarily the specific type of plyometric exercise that you're going to be doing that's super important. But when you're getting started, keep the dose low and start with exercises where you are dropping to the ground rather than jumping up off the ground. Is that right? That's exactly right. And even when you are seasoned in plyometrics, one of the biggest errors, and you brought up earlier, is you know there, there seems to be a lot of people that enter them into their training and, and often a, a high injury um, sort of rate, as you say, oh, I tried plyometrics because everybody said it would be good for my speed and power, and I immediately you know strained something or I didn't feel good about it. A lot of times it wasn't the plyometric that – it wasn't the exercise or you doing plyometrics that was the problem. A lot of times you're like, oh, I read an article that plyometrics are good, so all of a sudden I had never done a plyometric in my training for the last 10 years and I did 90 of them. And, um, yeah, it's weird that I got hurt, you know? And so again, it's the dose. Most people are surprised. Um, when you see doses of plyometrics in our programs, a lot of times it's, um, you know, sets of fours and sixes, you know, stuff like that. It's, um, you know, you don't need a lot. It's meant to be a quality and, um, you know, rapid power-based um, action, not a volume-based um, uh, training tool. Sometimes hard to convince runners of that. We think <laughs> more and more and more, more long runs, more mileage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Tim, this has been really fascinating. I, I love learning about you know how you think about some of these topics. I think there's, there's a lot to learn for runners. But before we close up shop, is there anything I might have missed that you'd like to discuss about strength training for runners, about plyometrics, and about starting these things if you're not yet doing them already in your training? Right. I, you know, I think you can, um, you, you, you can, I think the biggest point is, uh, you know, we try, I tried to introduce a couple of the simple ways, but, you know, look, skipping rope, jump rope, that's, that's going to help that sort of calf based plyometric action. Um, you, you know, from preparing for that part of, of running is very important. Uh, you know, stuff like that along those lines, it, it doesn't have to be this big complicated jump, jump training program. Um, you know, but adding some jump rope into your program can be one great way from the calf Achilles plantar fascia standpoint. Um, and, and I think that, you know, some of the other ways that you can sort of think about those um, actions of uh, or, or how to navigate the plyometric world of things is to uh, always pay attention to single leg versus double leg. So, you know, start with double leg, move to single leg, um, that single leg versions are going to be more taxing on you in that sense. Um, but I, I think one of the pieces that I touched on before is I just see a lot of endurance runners don't do any sprinting ever. And you brought it up as well. And um, sprinting is just a plyometric, you know, and, and so it's just a powerful plyometric. But things like uh, not only skipping rope or jump rope, but skipping um, uh, lateral skipping, um, think, think multiple directions, get yourself out of the linear action all the time. And it can go a long way for you, whether we're talking plyometrics or just in your, your training and, and, um, you know, and, and non-running work. Um, but bounding, uh, is another great one, you know, really, 
working on, you know, especially for runners, have it being able to, um, uh, if you use analogy, you see a lot of pit pitchers, they do what they call long toss and they'll go out in the outfield and they'll sort of warm up, at, you know, and they'll, every 10 throws, they'll take 10 steps back and all of a sudden they're like really far away from each other in the outfield and they're working on their ability to, um, you know, send the ball in a longer arcing motion and really have to expose their whole shoulder to full ranges of motion versus just a, you know, fast ball down the middle from the, the mound to the, the plate. And it's a nice way to expose that, that area that's going to get taxed in the performance um, to, you know, bounding is going to really just lengthen out your stride and have you really expose the the hip and teach the hip how to get into extension. Um, you know that kind of thing. There's another great drill that uh, is called in in some uh, uh, places you might see it as a closed system drill. Um, we would call it a um, a, a wall uh, single exchange drill. So you imagine yourself. On hands on the wall, you're on a lean from the wall. So your feet are back a little bit. You're on a lean. You're going to bring your right knee up and um, you're in sort of a, if you took a, a, a side view of yourself, you'd be in that perfect sprinter position where you're, you've got the one knee up and the other leg is driving straight behind you and you picture a sprinter in a, in a side view um, snapshot. So then you're going to like pistons, you're going to switch the feet. So you've got the one knee up, boom, you just switch the feet and you want full extension with your back leg as you go into that so that your back knee really looks straight versus slightly bent. And um, so I think it's, that's another great one where you're, you're practicing that hip extension drive into the ground. You're landing on the ball of your foot, not flat footed. Um, You know, we wouldn't go for a run on our totally flat feet. Um, And, um, and every step just hit, heel and front foot all together, you know, you, you would never do that. So, um, so yeah, I think those are some great ways to, to enter that in. Um, and I, I think that you do want to understand that one bigger, um, important point is just that the, the poisons in the dose when it, when it comes to all this stuff, you know, you don't need a ton of resistance training. I'm not saying you need to be carrying yourself to your car at the end of the, the weight room session. Um, you know, you, you, you can go in, find three, um, of those eight movements, uh, you know, four of those eight movements on a Tuesday and four of the eight movements that I mentioned on a, on a Thursday, and you could do two sets of 12 to 20 reps, you know, uh, some load body weight load, depending on, you know, if your body weight, you can add in those slow, lower isometric holds and stuff like that to make up for the fact that maybe you're not ready to quite grab some weights and feel comfortable with it. Um, it doesn't have to be a ton. The poisons in the dose and and the the values in the dose. Um, dosing sums important. Overdosing is where we get into problems. And so, um, you know, I think that's really an important takeaway. Tim, this is so helpful. And I think if I were to summarize that, you're encouraging us to be athletes rather than just runners. Yeah, I like that. I'm always telling my runners, think of yourself as an athlete that specializes in running. And that just means that you have to do all these other things. And it's just a nice little mindset shift. That's awesome. I'm going to, I might have to steal that one. I love that. (laughs) Well, Tim, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for your expertise. I feel like we could have made this a a two and a half hour podcast, but. (laughs) Might have to do part two. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do a part two and we'll talk about some extra topics related to strength for runners. Uh, I'm going to include links to your social media handles and your website because I think you're just a wealth of 
really fantastic information for all athletes. But um, if there's anywhere specific that you'd like runners to connect with you, where might that be? Yeah, so I'm most um, active and responsive, and responsive on Instagram. So if you DM me on Instagram, I'm at TD Athletes Edge, um, and um, I'm, I'm very responsive there. If you DM me there within a uh, a day or two, if not sooner, I'll get back to you um, with any any questions you might have, um, anything like that. So that's a great place to find us, uh, find me, and then um, Twitter. Um, as where you found me, I'm I'm uh, fairly active over there as well, and and like to interact uh, with people there. Um, and then, um, you can go to our website, www.tdathletesedge.com. Um, and you'll find our blog there as well. And, and it might be, um, you know, nice Jason to also include one of the recent blog series I did on, um, this is either a two or three parter, I think on, um, might've been a four parter on, on lower body durability. And it really covers, um, those five plus one zones and it gives, loads of video examples of, of a lot of the exercises we talked about. Awesome. I'm going to include links to that in the show notes on the strength running website. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. We'll do it again, Jason. Thanks so much. That my friends is my conversation with Tim DeFrancesco. Connect with him on Instagram because he has a wealth of information that he provides. You can also get Strength Running's free strength series at strengthrunning.com strength. That was the most number of times I've ever said the word strength in one sentence. Okay, finally, let's get you some discounted hydration and sleep help. Our sponsor, Beam, is offering a 15% discount on your entire order at beamtlc.com with code JASON at checkout. The two products I'm enjoying the most are their Elevate Hydration Line and Dream, their Sleepy Time Mix. The Elevate Hydration options include Balance, that has prebiotics and probiotics for a happy gut, energy with a small amount of natural caffeine, this is my favorite, and recovery with collagen and amino acids. They're all low in sugar. I love the taste of all of them, and the energy mix has a watermelon flavor, which tastes like watermelon bubblicious. It's just amazing. And I love that they use responsibly sourced ingredients. Now, Dream is very different. This is a powder that tastes like cinnamon hot cocoa, and it helps you get a better sleep. It has THC-free CBD, melatonin, magnesium, L-theanine, and other compounds that help you get more restful sleep. And I don't know if you know this, but I can have sleep issues. Sometimes I can't get to sleep because I'm just thinking about too many things, or if I wake up in the middle of the night, I just can't get back to sleep. Dream is helping me sleep more soundly, get more hours of restorative sleep, and it's making me feel a lot better throughout the day. They've sold over 1 million servings of Dream, and I don't want you to miss out too. Use code JASON, which is not case sensitive, at checkout at beamtlc.com. You'll save 15% on your order. And if you couple that with a subscription, your first month savings will be 35%. Sleep better, recover faster, what's not to love? Anything that can help you better absorb your training, recover from it, and then adapt to it is something worthy of your attention. Go to beamtlc.com and use code JASON to save 15% today. All right, that is our show today, runners. Thank you so much for listening, for being part of our amazing community here. If there's anything I can ever do for you, don't hesitate to send me a note. I'm very responsive on Instagram. You can also email me at support at strengthrunning.com. 
Until next time.